0: Hello, and welcome to the In Publishing podcast. My name is James Evely, and I'm the editor of In Publishing. My guest this time is Sharon Cooper, Chief Digital Officer at the Economist Intelligence Unit, part of the Economist Group. Sharon tells us why automation is an opportunity, not a threat.
1: Somebody once said to me in the organisation when I first joined, You're going to automate me out of a job, aren't you? And I said, Actually, I think I'm going to automate you into a better job.
0: About the nature of the work they do at the EIU. We're a forecast business. We look
1: to the future. We're not a data business. It's not about the actual data that's of interest to us. It's about what we think is going to happen next. And that forecast is ours and it's unique to us.
0: And how the role of the augmented analyst is an important part of the future for business information providers.
1: You don't automate them away, you augment them. And I, I really like the idea of the sort of the augmented analyst where they have a whole set of tools at their, um, at their disposal um, to, um, to be able to use, to, to be able to tell a better story and to be more accurate in our forecast and for that forecast to be more accurate earlier because that's what makes the difference to a client.
0: Amongst many other things, but first a quick word about our valued sponsors. We would like to thank our podcast sponsor, Advantage CS, a leading global provider of subscription and membership management software. Capabilities include marketing, sales, payments, and customer relationship software for publishers, membership associations, and information providers. For more information, go to advantagecs.com. Sharon Cooper has been Chief Digital Officer of the Economist Intelligence Unit since 2018. The EIU is a research and analysis division of the Economist Group and provides global business intelligence to financial service companies, large corporates, government and academic institutions. Sharon Cooper, welcome to the In Publishing podcast.
1: Thanks, James. Lovely to be here.
0: Now, can we start by looking at your, your role and responsibilities at the EIU? Um, what are they?
1: So I, I manage um, a number of teams, uh, look after our engineering and our product teams, our research uh, and discovery, and also work very closely with our operations team, partly responsible for that and for data. So the economists that actually drive the forecast data.
0: Uh, and in terms of your, your key goals and objectives, um, what are the challenges you face? What are they um, and what are the challenges you face in achieving them?
1: I think um, like any organisation, trying to make sure we can keep up with our clients and make sure we're delivering what they need so that we continue to get those renewals coming in. So sort of key objectives are about modernising a lot of the estate that we have within the organisation and really making sure that the products we create meet the needs of, of our users.
0: So when you say modernising the estate, well, what does that mean Exactly.
1: So we've got a lot of, as as a lot of companies, we've got a lot of legacy technology systems that have worked really, really well for a long time, um, but now are not quite where they need to be in this sort of day of, you know, people want more responsive content. They want to be able to interact with our content and not just read it. Uh, and actually how we create those products and services means that we we need to build in Um, Different ways of working into our back end systems so that we can then deliver more content and more interactivity at the front. So, a case in point might be um, we used to just have static charts that were images in our reports, and now the charts in our new website, um, Viewpoint, that we've just launched, has interactive charts in there. That's required changes in the back end infrastructure to be able to support that delivery at the front.
0: So, when you presumably all your analysts and your team are are using certain bits of kit, if you like, it must be quite hard to change things which are in use on a daily basis, isn't it?
1: it it's always hard as anyone knows you know um everyone wants something different and new and they don't like what they're using but when you come to change it they don't want the change either and and people can be worried about the impact of having to run across dual systems and in any change process like the one we're going through we we're, we're expecting a lot of our team to be able to work across multiple systems as we fade new things in and fade the old infrastructure out um, so we ask a lot of everybody, I think, to, to be able to deliver what we need to do.
0: So, so how do you how do you counter the uh, the well that the reluctance to change? I mean, how, how do, you, do you cope with that? How do you get around that? I think it's always a combination of
1: things. There's a bit of stick and a bit of carrot, isn't there? There's the, you know, you've been complaining about this system for the last decade and now guess what? We're going to change it. And you've got an opportunity to be part of that process and to really shape what we're going to build. So it does what you need it to do, along with the the sort of the stick of, you um yeah, that that we've got to do this, you know, this system is literally going to fall away underneath your feet in, in you know, a couple of years time, and you really don't want it to collapse while you're trying to do a forecast. Um, and trying to use um, the the evidence that when when they kind of come along to me, and they say, Oh, yeah, this doesn't work. And this is taking me hours to do this. And so you're, you're trying to use those stories to help them understand what a new tool and a new system will be. So imagine if you could take three minutes to do this instead of two hours. Imagine if you could just automatically get this done um, and what it would allow you to do. Uh, Somebody once said to me in the organization when I first joined, you're going to automate me out of a job, aren't you? And I said, actually, I think I'm going to automate you into a better job. And I hope that's the right thing for you. Um, so I think it's about reassurance of people, because a lot of the, the nervousness around change is, you know, am I going to be needed in this organisation? And that's a very human response and one that I think we need to make sure we're very cognizant of.
0: So that's a lovely story. So how do you, in very broad terms, automate somebody into a future, into a job?
1: Into a better job. Into a better job, I, a better job, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Automate them into. I think it's really about understanding what it is that they do and where they add value, um, in the chain. So, uh, yeah, there is a lot of technology around that allows you to automate the cleaning of data. Um, and and if that's a manual process, which it is in some parts of of our organisation. Why do we need people to be to be cleaning that data when they add no value into it? Um, where our value is added is in our analysts and our forecasters and, and our econometricians really thinking about what the impact is of that data on the client's business. So, for example, you know, if a client, you know, we're a forecast business, we look f- to the future. We're not a data business. It's not about the actual data that's of interest to us. It's about what we think is going to happen next and that forecast is ours and it's unique to us and that's where the value out of our analysts are it's not in making sure that the data that's historic is correct that can be done I hope uh, by the system making sure that there is you know the quality control is in there to make sure that data is accurate and then they spend their time thinking about what does matter if you know what does happen if um if the exchange rate uh, rockets in this particular country or GDP falls in another country, that's the real value add. And that's actually what they enjoy doing.
0: So, so when you started at EIU in 2018, uh, I recall that one of the things that appealed to you was the, the long to do list you, mm. you were faced, you were confronted with. Um, what have been the main things you've done since you started?
1: Um, made that to-do list longer, I
0: suppose. <laughs> it only ever goes up, doesn't it? Only yeah. ever
1: goes up. Uh, so, so there's been a, a kind of a lot of business continuity. So we we sort of really reinforced a lot of systems that um, that we needed to be able to work remotely. And we put in a lot of infrastructure, luckily, just before last March, um, which meant that everyone could work from home. Uh, that, was, that was fortuitous. Tight. Very fortuitous uh, that we got that in in time. So so sort of quite big sort of short term, really kind of rudimentary sort of server level things. Um, but those are about making sure the business can run itself and then really thinking about how the business can grow and how it can transform itself. And so sort of trying to, to think in those three paradigms of What have we got to keep going? What's got to stay on the rails? How do we make sure we do that? How do we organize our teams and our people? So we've sort of really thought about who can we bring in, um, in terms of sort of third parties to help us do some of that run um, of legacy infrastructure that we know we are going to remove from the business in the next few years and focus our internal talent on the grow and the transform. So on doing the new things and the things that matter most. Um, so, so we've done a lot of that um, viewpoint. Our new our new platform uh, launches in a, in a few weeks to to our clients. We migrate clients onto that. That's been a nine month um, labor of love of me and and a large team who've really focused on completely rebuilding the front end of our products. Um, and I think in building that new front end, we've really understood what we now need to do the back end to make that work so uh, rather than sort of we could have taken a a choice of, of starting to renovate the back end systems first and then push that through to the front end for various reasons that that wasn't going to work but I think really focusing on the user experience will allow us to to make sure we build in the right back end and not to um to be able to remove some of the the perhaps the fat or the pieces of the systems that are no longer really needed but are there because they've been there and we've done things that way for the last 20 or 30 years um, and those things get embedded in systems. So those are probably the really really big things underneath all of that lots of smaller scale things. I've also been working you know, we we're focusing at the moment on our country analysis business but we also have a healthcare division and we have an events business out in in Asia and so I've been working with them to help them rethink, you know. What are the tools and technologies they need to run their businesses more efficiently um, to to deliver a more joined up experience? Um, So our our events business last last March had to go from being entirely face to face to entirely virtual, literally overnight. So helping them uh, make that transition.
0: So, with the EIU, you know the viewpoint, EIU viewpoint, with your new product, what was the thinking behind that? It's obviously, as you say, been a big project of yours for a long time. Mm. What was the initial impulse? What was what led you down that road? Why did you feel you needed to to present your your offering in a different way? Uh, we have
1: amazing insight and analysis, and our our existing website just didn't get that. In front of clients, um, they just couldn't find things. So, uh, we had some some elements of that infrastructure that were absolutely end of life and were not working properly. Search engine being one of them. So, there was a lot of work we could have done to that platform um, to make it work properly. Um, but in actual fact, we just thought that the effort to do that, we might as well just start again from scratch and really build a platform that would allow us to to become more of the business we want to be in the future. Um, We kind of had, it's like, you know, it's like a a house, you sort of, you grow to fill that space. And then at some point you've just either got to, you've just got to move or you've got to have a real declutter. Um, It really allowed us to, to consolidate our products. So as well as building a new platform, we also restructured the portfolio. We had quite a scattered portfolio and, you know, we've really focused on what it is that clients need from us and have streamlined that portfolio, made it easier to sell, easier for clients to understand what they can get from us, easier for them to find content, uh, more interactive and want to make that even more interactive in future. So the ability to interact with our data and our forecasts rather than just read them. And what, what we had you know, is still, is still very good and very for, for purpose in a lot of ways. If you want to go in and read reports, it does that job very well. What it doesn't do is allow people to interact with the information. Um, and that's, that's the absolute key to, to viewpoint. Um, and it's
0: a platform for the future. And will, is that going to be in a sense your, your, your main offering to clients? Is everything going to come under the viewpoint banner? Uh,
1: for, for country analysis for that, okay. that, that client need. Yes. Um, that is the aim. And if not, as the viewpoint product, the underlying technology and platform will allow us to support uh, a number of other things that we want to do, especially around some of the ways in which we want to present data. So, um, so not necessarily the be all and end all. I think that kind of one platform for every every use case is always slightly worrying because you end up with a, you kind of try and shoehorn things into something you've got, but we've built it in such a way so that it's much more modular then yeah and and a lot of your listeners will will recognize that you know you used to build monoliths of software and now you build things in containers and you build them in such a way that you can plug and play and that's exactly what what we've tried to do um, for for this platform to make it future-proof so we can pull things out and we can plug new things in when we need to.
0: And did you involve clients and prospective clients in, in the design of it?
1: Every step of the way, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, and, and some really, really interesting insights. So, a big part of Viewpoint is um, is an interactive data tool. We have about 100,000 data series, I think, um, with millions of data points in that. And we needed to completely re architect the taxonomy, so, the way in which you search through that data because a lot of clients like to browse as well as search and they want to go through a tree and start to find you where is that data series and that was entirely driven by by external input from a a range of clients in a range of different um, different sectors as well because we're absolutely aware that that whilst our users might be quite similar their backgrounds and the companies that they come from can be very different so their needs can be very aligned, but they can also be quite quite substantially different. And the same user might have a different use case every time they come to visit the site. Um, so they might be an expert on Africa, and then suddenly they've got a piece of work they need to do, which is about America, and they know very little. So they want that deep dive as well as that kind of horizon scan. And we've designed the product to be able to meet um, all of those different use cases by really... Understanding what our different users are and, and why they come to us
0: and how did you obviously client feedback sounds like it was a crucial element of the design. How did you go about harnessing that feedback? Was it a, a, you know that must be in a fairly large project in itself just to get that that information in?
1: really hard and I think I think in b2b environments you know you've got really busy users you've got people who are you know incredibly busy professionals um who have a vested interest in talking to you because they will want the product to improve but they're also busy Uh, in lots of different time zones you know our clients are all over the globe so um partly it was just being tenacious um asking them finding people on LinkedIn finding people who were not our clients um contacts of of people friends parents dads brothers sisters you know we went absolutely everywhere um and the kind of we also you know just got yeah you know, our friends and family to look at things as well because there's a whole bunch of stuff you can get by just having average human beings looking at things as well as specialists
0: that's interesting i wasn't i wasn't expecting you to say that
1: yeah well i, th- I think you know there's there's you know, expectations of website design now is that everything is as simple as the best B2C experience. We, we come to B2B with a lot of expectations from everything else that's in our world. And for some of that, you need to put those things aside and say, yeah, you know, we, we don't have those sorts of budgets and, and our clients don't work in that way. And, and I think one of the challenges is, is trying not to get too fancy. Our clients, want to get the data they want it really quickly they don't want to have to learn so we spent some time really thinking about do we change this yes we could change it yes we could make it much much more fancy but will they thank us for that when they're really busy and they want to get to something and so we we did keep some things very very similar and and certainly in in one of our recent client demos um the client one of our big banking clients said thank you because you've kept all the stuff that really matters to us and you've added a lot more stuff that makes it easier. And I think that's that's a really interesting challenge in the B2B world. Clients don't want lots of change. quick. They want they want to be able to ease into this, I believe.
0: That will sound very, very exciting. So you've probably touched on this already, Sharon, a bit, but how has the world of business information services evolved over the last few years?
1: I think in lots of different ways, and um, I suppose one of the interesting ones for an organisation like us is how much, you know, how much the data tools, so low code, no code environments, um, allow clients to do a lot more for themselves. So, where's your value add? You know, where do you, you know, if they if they can take all of the same data that you can, and they can put it through the same tools and systems as you can, um, where do you add value in the workflow? And and that's I think for a lot of B2B organizations is is the real sort of challenge as to where do we fit into this ecosystem now when, when they can do it for themselves. Um, and, and so for us, you know, our forecast is unique. It's our forecast is what we think. So making sure we focus on, on that and on how that makes a difference to clients and what we do around that is, is sort of critical, I think, to our thinking rather than you know, we've got to have this shiny bell and whistle and we've got to have have something else. The clients may not want that because all they want to do is to rip our data out of our system, put it into their own and churn it through their own processes. And that's absolutely fine.
0: So I was thinking to to a certain extent, maybe are some of your major competitors, if you like, in-house analysis teams. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of the client needs, um, how have they changed? Again, I think we've, we've probably touched on that. It's uh, they probably their demands have gone up exponentially.
1: Yep. There's expectations around timeliness, around granularity. You know, they want more. They want it more tailored to them. So can you tell me what this means for me in my tiny industry sector? Um, as Rather than just tell me what this means at sort of a, a much broader macro level, um, they want potentially want things delivered to them in a very tailored way, rather than sort of accepting the, this is the generic version. Uh, So all of that is, is stuff that we have to sort of think about and play with as, as we go through product development processes.
0: Uh, And typically, I mean, maybe you can't generalize, but what do your clients use your data for? What's the most common usage?
1: I, I suppose a couple of examples. Yeah. Um, Banking client investing in a major infrastructure project in a developing economy knows nothing about that economy. Um, yeah, you know, hydroelectric dam in Zimbabwe is almost always my favorite favorite thing. They need to know is that country a safe place for their money over the next twenty years if they're going to invest in a massive infrastructure project. So that might be one example. Um, a lot of our clients use us for strategy planning. Here you know, we're going to yeah. You know, we're going to you know sportswear manufacturer we're going to build a store on the corner of this street in new york um, what's what's going to be happening at a city level in that in that city over the next five years? Is that the best place to have a store? What data can we use to help us make that decision? So I think we are a part of a lot of companies' decision making processes. We are not usually the only input they'll have a lot of their own insight their own data uh, but will be used to to help validate those decisions Um, and it's not just economic data a lot of our clients come to us for the the combination of economic and political um, and policy because we look at all of those things in the round so it's what happens if you know what would have happened if Donald Trump versus Joe Biden had got had got into power we think about that and the impact that has on the economy and that helps clients plan well how do you know how do i transition through this how do i make this difference
0: so if you look at the data available to you and your teams how has this changed over the years
1: so i think we what we see like like a lot of organizations is the rise of um of real time data and that can you know so You can tell, for example, you can tell how much oil is in a tanker looking at a photograph of that ship from a satellite and the shadow that it casts on the sea. Um, So you can get an awful lot more real-time data. You can see various different things from um, cranes in China and you can look at how the the housing market is developing based on, on what the activity of cranes are on building sites. So these are all... Uh, ways in which data can come into you. The question I think is how do you use that? And you could get completely distracted by having all of that data. What value does it add to to what we do and what your business does? So data overload I think is a massive challenge and sifting through what out of this data is valuable for what we do versus, versus what is not. Um, we use a lot of static, his, you know, backward-looking data uh, gdp for example those sorts of things um how are those going to change in future in terms of how you know economies count uh the value of of things within within um, a country so data is always changing you've got to work out what you need to do your job how your competitors are using that how people who are not your competitors right now are are using that type of data um, and then making sure you don't overload yourself with a lot of data that really doesn't actually make a difference to the story that you're trying to tell.
0: And those that oil tanker um, scenario and the cranes, uh, how does that information come to you in the first instance? I mean, are there other d- data middlemen middle people who come to you say, well, I've got a great new data source? Or are you on the lookout for, I mean, how do you find it? Uh, it's it's
1: both. There are plenty of organizations who specialize in just those very, very narrow disciplines. Um, there are a lot of organizations that are capturing that data. A lot of companies are capturing it for themselves as well. So um, data is captured by government organizations, um, you know, footfall data in shopping centers, your CCTV data from streets. There's so much data you can you know there are places on a w s or snowflake where you could just go and buy these data sets um, I think some of it is the you know is the value add from them comes in them cleaning it, them ingesting it, and giving you a really nice feed of nice, clean data that you can pull into your system in a particular way that allows you to do your job without you as an organization having to spend a lot of time processing that data and i think that's one of the the changes but you can pay a lot of money for that data so again it's this weighing up what value does it bring versus what value am i going to deliver to my client
0: so as well, is that is that the criteria you use so if you have a new data set you know cranes in in new york city um how, what kind of questions do you ask before deciding yes that's something we can use
1: uh, a lot of questions and and I think some of it is you know is how does it fit into the model is that is that something that actually makes a difference to what we would forecast does it tell a different story does it lend more depth to to the data points that we're covering and and will that change the forecast because if it doesn't change the forecast and again it's this thing about looking forward, then what value does it does it add? So we have certainly done some trials and pulled in da- different data sets and some we've kept, and some we've said, you know, this actually doesn't doesn't make a difference to what we think will happen, therefore, do we actually need it
0: And in terms of you know looking ahead for you know data sources that might emerge in the future and trends, um, do you see any where do you see the most potential?
1: I think that's really hard to say at the moment. Um I think there is an awful lot of potential in in some of the sort of the not quite that very very sort of cutting edge real time data the satellite imagery for for our business. Um I think I think it'll be other sources potentially certainly looking at the the data that you can get from um from emerging economies rather than from developed economies. So that's where that's where there is a dearth of data at the moment or a dearth of really good, high quality data. And and that's something. So it's it's less the type of data, it's more where it might be coming from. Those are things that that would make a difference because that's the places where everyone wants to know more about what's happening because those economies can be more volatile sometimes um, or just are just unknown places. And therefore people want more information to be able to make business decisions on.
0: Now, we mentioned, uh, you, in fact, you mentioned automation earlier on. Um, t- um, to what extent can the work of your analysts and your forecasters be automated? Uh, and what are the challenges you face in doing this?
1: Um, they would they would hate me to say that we could automate everything, and we couldn't. Um, I, I would never suggest that. I think the automation, I think, as I said before, is in the cleaning of the data, in the sort of processing it and getting it ready for analysis, um, we did some really interesting um experiments a couple of years ago where we tried to write content using AI so writing articles and you know based on you know just pulling data and getting um a, an algorithm to actually write an article for us and it didn 't sound like us and it didn 't feel like us and we really struggled with trying to then put that together with the sort of stories that we wanted to tell that are Analysts, you know the way in which we express things, and it was just not sophisticated enough at the time to be able to get the nuances of the stories, even with really sort of simple pieces so I think there's there's potentially automation that that you put into the hands of the analyst and becomes part of them, so you don't automate them away, you augment them and i I really like the idea of the sort of the augmented analyst where they have a whole set of tools at their um, at their disposal um to um to be able to use to, to be able to tell a better story and to be more accurate in our forecast and for that forecast to be more accurate earlier because that's what makes the difference to a client is the sooner we say something's going to happen the better the business decision that they can make
0: uh, and in in terms of ai do you see potential for not not so much putting your analyst out of business, but, you know, doing some of the, you know, dealing with some of the lower hanging fruit. I mean, obviously it wasn't up to the job a couple of years ago. Do you, do you think there have been advances which mean that you might look at it again?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think analyst, um, this sort of, you know, this concept of the augmented analyst, this sort of, you know, they have this just this is a wider catalogue of tools that they use that help them you know, find the story or find the insight. You can find the insight that adds to, to what they're going to say that just gives the client something that can't be got from somewhere else. And automation, um, so being able to search in harder to find data sources, being able to process more more, I don't know, news articles so that they can actually scan a much wider set of data using automated tools that can then bring back, you know, here are 5,000 interesting things, um, but here are the top five. Rather than the, the analysts having to read all those 5,000, they can really focus on the top five because they can trust the algorithms that have, that have pulled that data together. I think all of that is incredibly powerful um, in the future for, for enabling us to be faster, to be more responsive, to be more accurate, and, um, and, and to be able to look more into the future and uh, you know, with, with confidence that, that we can then pass on to, to our users.
0: Uh, and given the enormous amount of data and the ever increasing amounts of data and uh, coupled with the increased, you know, increasing demands on your analysts, um, w- what are the quality control issues you face?
1: Um, I, th- I think it's always, yeah, it's, it's garbage in, garbage out. Um, and I think that adage has, has stood for a long time. So, so quality control sort of runs through every part of the process and every part of the stage. And it's, and it's just about, you know, adjusting and fine tuning those, those controls to make sure you're always on the lookout for, you know, various different things. Um, and it's, it's the, you know, how do you how do you judge what what is right and what is wrong? And some of it is, you know, we we do a lot of things like we back test the models, so we say, okay, this is what we thought, and then we go back and check things. And so I think it is that sort of due diligence of going back as well as looking forward, um, and just yeah, you know, looking at those controls on a regular basis.
0: Now, being in, being embedded into a client's workflow is the the end goal for for many business information providers. Um, what advice would you give other publishers on on how best to achieve that?
1: I think you need to understand what the client's trying to achieve and and how best you embed yourself in their workflow without getting in the way. So if I think about my time at, at BMJ, just sort of going back a little bit, it, we, want, we had a clinical decision support system that we really wanted to make sure was embedded in the clinician's workflow. You know, and we sort of thought very carefully about... Um, how and we, we you know I spent time in hospital wards where we were following clinicians around and saw seeing how they use technology so that you know and that made us really think about how we developed an app because a lot of clinicians were looking at things on a mobile phone and we really optimized it for that rather than thinking about the desktop because a doctor is rarely in front of a computer screen unless they're a GP um, so so sort of and, and thinking about those sort of subtle differences. So whilst your product might address one audience, what are the different types of user? What are the things they do at different times of day? Um, and again, sort of thinking, you know, we, we did some work where in the morning, they were looking at our product on a mobile phone. At lunchtime, they were looking at it on a desktop. And in the evening, they were on a tablet. And thinking about, you know, that's that was their workflow. So obviously, in the morning, they were checking what was coming into, into their day. During the day, they were sitting at their desk on a computer and in the evening they were reading and they were sort of looking at things um, as background information, perhaps for the next day. So it's not just about thinking about your your user and your client as as one thing with one fixed set of tasks. If you're really, really smart and you can do this, it's about understanding what is the the flow of their workflow. Where are you? What are they doing when you're in there? All of those sorts of things are are really um, are really valuable to try and to try and manage and think about, but really hard. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that's easy to do at all.
0: Uh, and is the EIU as embedded in workflows as you would like, or is there the room for for more? I think in every
1: business there's always room for more. You'd always like to be more embedded.
0: And where next for EIU? What's in the pipeline that you can tell us about?
1: Uh, growing viewpoint, obviously launching that, um, getting our clients onto it. We've got a lot of really excited clients who are who are desperate to, to get on. We've got some in pilot at the moment and that's going to take us a while to move everyone across because, you know, we want to make sure that, that everyone comes across with what they need at the speed at which they need to do it. And again, I think it's that sort of understanding your client and your client's workflow is that, you know, they might not have time to to move to and learn a new platform because they're going through a big change. Um, so being really respectful of that is really important. And developing, we've got some ideas for some new products. Looking at new markets as we as we look at sort of the healthcare and our and our corporate network businesses. So looking at expansion there into different economies. So. Lots of lots of really interesting interesting things on the horizon, I think, and, and just really making this new platform and product grow and sing and deliver to 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 what our clients um need. Because I think what we've got now is just the start. Um it's not the finish.
0: And you know, we've talked about legacy structures beforehand um earlier on in the interview. Is there a point do you see in the future where all your legacy kit will be out and or is it a constant process of, of changing what you've got and evolving?
1: I think like a lot of businesses, there's some really good legacy tech that's doing a good job. And as long as as long as the sort of you can keep that running and well looked after, um there's there's nothing necessarily wrong with legacy tech. It's legacy tech that's not looked after. So I think we'll have some stuff in our systems that will be there for a while. It does a really good job. We don't need to replace it. Um, and to actually replace it is is probably more is harder than keeping it where it is and looking after it well. So um, I think it's about, you know, where where do you get the best value out of your investments in in technology and not just replacing technology for the sake of it?
0: And where do you looking at the, the wider business information sector, um, where do you see the main opportunities and threats?
1: i think uh clients are yeah users are, are our biggest opportunities and our biggest threats you know for me the biggest threat is they can do a better job themselves and suddenly you're like well, well where am i in their process and and you're out of the door completely um i think the opportunities are always that that people's needs are changing and being able to react to those and trying to to understand where you fit and how you can pivot a product and how you can change What you do so that you can become potentially it's it's sort of it's that growth opportunity of of running a a product that's aligned to what you do, um, but not just kind of keep trying to enhance in small ways the thing that you've got. But what's out there? What does data allow you to do? What is the new what a new technology that you don't need to invest in lots of back-end infrastructure, so software as a service and other tools, what do they allow you to do that you couldn't do before? And how do you do that at a scale that means it's better for you to do
0: it than your client to do it themselves? And finally, Sharon, a question we ask all all of our guests on the podcast, outside of work, um, how do you relax? Um, I
1: have a really good friendship group. I live in a small village um, in the countryside, so I get out to do a lot of walking, and oh, we have some great country pubs around here. So yeah, as and just all the sort of social stuff that's opening up again now, I'm really looking forward to getting back to, but I also have um, a lovely garden, spend a lot of time there and I make kind of crazy big celebration cakes for friends and families um, themed to whatever is going on. So just had a friend's big birthday, I won't tell you what number it was, but I made in <laughs> He's um he's a DIY enthusiast who loves speakers and LEDs. And I made him a toolbox, cake shaped like a toolbox that was covered, that lit up and actually played music out of a cake speaker. So um, he was rather thrilled with that. So that's that's the sort of thing I do.
0: So is that a skill? How did you acquire that skill? Is that just a passion you've had for years or have you gone to baking class or what?
1: Um, I, I think I did one class once on Christmas cakes and icing a Christmas cake. And it's really come out of making cakes for my daughter. So, you know, she's she's now um, in her late teens and so you're 20 years of of making ever increasingly complicated birthday cakes. And then somebody said, or could you make one for my daughter? And then I started making one for friends and parents. And yeah, it just, I love that kind of creativeness of trying to think, what is it that sums up this person? And then building that into a cake.
0: And do you send your pictures into the Great British Bake Off?
1: No. <laughs> but I do have a Pinterest page where, where some of them are. Um, no, I wouldn't claim to be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that amount of time to, to spend baking. And it would feel, I don't know, I mean, I've heard other people say this, it would feel like a chore. And for me, I love just being able to say, oh, it's six o'clock this evening. I'm just going to go and bake something. Um, and if I had to do it, I'd, I wouldn't, it would become a job. And I don't think I'd enjoy it so much then.
0: Sharon, That's what you've got me thinking about cakes and biscuits, so I'm going to go and put the <laughs> kettle on now. Um, Sharon Cooper, thank you very much for being our guest on the In Publishing podcast.
1: My pleasure, James. Thank you.
0: We would like to thank Advantage CS again for sponsoring this podcast. Advantage CS has been developing subscription management solutions for the information industry since 1979. The comprehensive functionality, adaptability, and scalability of its software helps leading publishers around the world manage their businesses more effectively. Find out more at AdvantageCS.com. Many thanks to Sharon for giving us a fascinating insight into the fast changing world of business information services. I particularly liked her focus on data as a tool rather than as an end in itself. You can find out more about their new Viewpoint product at eiu.com. We also interviewed Sharon in the July August 2019 issue of In Publishing magazine, which you can find on our website. Just go to inpublishing.co.uk and search for Sharon Cooper. Thank you for listening and do join me in two weeks' time for another In Publishing podcast, where my guest will be Jim Bilton, talking about the recent Media on Media survey. Bye for now.